It's a twist of fate backed by a ton of hard work and determination. That's the story of Sharon Presler, the first woman to fly the F-16 and to take that Air Force fighter jet into combat. She's a pioneer and joins me on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Colonel Presler, welcome to Pick Up the Six Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, Brian. Thank you. Oh man, I am. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, we've got this neat uh, kind of little ongoing series here that's developed over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, and it really kind of spurs back to the interview that we had with uh, Casey Campbell a few months ago, and then it opened up the doors with Tammy Barlett, uh, and then Samantha Combo Weeks comes on as well, and so I've had kind of a neat run here uh, <laughs> with with some pioneers in aviation, really, uh, and so I'm just excited to have you join us for this ongoing conversation. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Right. Uh, history. Uh, history was made uh, when you uh, took to the F-16, and we're going to talk about all that and, and what that was like and, and going into a fighter squadron and that community in a rather historic way. Uh, but let's, uh, let's get to know you a little bit. So what is Sharon Presler's journey to the United States Air Force? Because everybody's got some unique, some things that are similar. What got you there? Yes. So um, I took my very first airplane flight when I was four years old. Um, And back then, you know, it was very traditional. The stewardesses were stewardesses, not flight attendants, and they were all women. And the pilots were sitting up front and they were mostly all men. This was like 1969. So um, they were were probably still smoking on the airplane at that point. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. But the cool thing was about it was um, at that point, the, the stewardesses could take us up to the cockpit. Yeah. So yeah. we were flying to England to go live with my grandparents while my dad served in the Vietnam War. And we went up to the cockpit at night and it was a moonless night over the Atlantic Ocean. And there was a billion stars in the sky. And it was just the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. So I went running back to, to my mom and I'm like, mommy, mommy, I want to be a stewardess, you know, because that's what all the women are doing. And and mom, <laughs> who's not traditional in any way, shape, or form, and I'm glad for that because she looked at me and said, you might want to think about being a pilot instead. And, and that got me going. At, at four years old, that's what I wanted to do. I had no idea that it probably wasn't allowed or that it wasn't very likely. I just, that's what I wanted to do. It was that day forward. Wow. Yeah. What was your dad doing during Vietnam? Um, he was a combat cameraman sitting in the backseat of all sorts of airplanes, F-4s. Oh, and, documenting it? And he, yeah. Wow. Yeah. He's probably got some, probably got or had some wild stories from those times. I yeah, he really did have some into stories. into F4 documenting it. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it wow. was neat. All right. So then how does the so, journey uh, then develop, right? So, you know, you're four years old, you have this moment, right? <laughs> Love what you see. Mom says, be a pilot. Well, you got to get from yeah. four to you know, 18, right? Yeah. What does all that look like? So it looks like, um, I don't know, it's a good thing I'm stubborn is what it looks like, I think, because I, uh, you know, my mom and dad got divorced shortly after he got back from the Vietnam War. So single mom raising two kids in the 70s, um, not a lot of supervision, didn't apply myself very much. By the time I figured out that to be, my plan was to go in the Air Force always to learn to fly because we didn't have any money. By the time I figured out that I had to have a college degree for that, I really hadn't done much in high school. Um, so my volleyball and softball coach, coach Ruderman, she kind of pulled me aside and 
and kind of got me going in the right direction and and kept an eye out on me and made sure I stayed out of trouble. So I ended up getting good grades my last couple of years and got some scholarship money and I tried to go off to school. And then uh, I applied to four different schools in California and I got turned down by all four of them. <laughs> so I went, Oh, that's not what I was expecting. Oh, you need a backup um, plan here. Yeah. So I went, I went to my college counselor and, and she said, which one do you really want to go to? And I told her university of California Davis. She said, okay, let's, let's appeal the rejection. So I wrote a letter and Coach Ruderman wrote a letter and Mrs. Garrett wrote a letter and they decided to let me in. So um, I ended up going, driving north, you know, four, 500 miles. I grew up in Southern California. So up north to UC Davis and went over to the ROTC detachment at Sacramento State and got ROTC scholarship, which was awesome because I needed the money for school. Mm-hmm. And uh, and back then, so this is now, it's 1984. Okay. I'm halfway through college and uh, at that point in ROTC, women always had to meet a central selection board because we were so limited in what we could fly or be an navigator on. So my year, 350 women met the board and they gave out 16 pilot slots and 11 navigator slots. And I got a navigator slot, <laughs> which is not quite exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kind of took it as a, as you know, at least I'm in an airplane. You know, this was back when we used to do celestial navigation and Doppler navigation and um, and I decided to find a way to go from pilot to navigator in the air force. Uh, and the way to do that, like if, if you want to earn an opportunity doing anything, you can't, you have to do really well at whatever you're doing. Right. I can't be a crummy navigator and expect them to send me to pilot training, even if I didn't really want to be a navigator. So I did the best I could as a navigator. I went to, uh, I went and got my own private, my license, private pilot's license in the Cessna 152. And it took about uh, two boards I met. And then the air force decided they'd send me to pilot training. So it was about, Five years after I started navigator training, I started pilot training there first. So give me a little history lesson on uh, on women going into fighters, right? So you could be a pilot in the Air Force, but flying mm-hmm. fighters wasn't an option. So give us a little history no. lesson as to where we're at in this 1984-85-ish time range. Yes. When so, this is happening, you're moving from nav to pilot, but it doesn't mean you get to go right. fly fighters. No. So at that time, when I was uh, graduating um, pilot training, I couldn't even fly a C-130 because their low altitude deliveries was considered a combat mission. So they wouldn't put you in that airplane. That gives you any kind of um, idea. But so I graduated from pilot training in 1992. And there was some rumors that they might change the rule and allow women to fly fighters. But I didn't, you know, I wasn't a lieutenant. I was a captain who'd been in the Air Force for six years already. And I just didn't see that happening. Right. It just wasn't something that was on my, um, in my vision. I'm like, that's not going to happen. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it's going to be. Right. Um, so when I went to pilot training, they, they were, uh, you know, the air force manning pendulum swings one way to the other and we're overmanned and then we're undermanned. Well, we all of a sudden were overmanned on pilots. So when we showed up to pilot training, my whole class, they told us that half of us were going to be banked, which meant, you wouldn't really get an airplane for three years after pilot training. You were going to wow. sit and do some other job somewhere. So that was kind of a big shock to all of us. And then, so it made it kind of a more competitive environment, even than normal, which was interesting for me because I was the class leader, you know, me and 19 second lieutenants. <laughs> so it was fun. We actually ended up having a really good class, but to what they did with the assignment system then was they rank ordered you in your class and then you could pick your assignment. 
based on what was available. You know, the Air Force still says, this is what we have. Mm-hmm. And then they go from base to base, the pilot training base. Okay, you're number one pick, you're number one pick, and around you go. So um, when it came time for me to pick my assignment, I actually kind of joked with my wing commander because there was an F-16 to be determined, which meant banked, right? And he just kind of looked at me and said, no, really, what do you want? And I went, okay, I'll take that C-21 to Andrews. <laughs> So I went to the Learjet after pilot training and uh, um, I didn't think another thing about it really until I'd been there. I don't know, probably six months. We came home from vacation and uh, there was all these messages on our answering machine. Cause now it's like 1993. So people still have answering machines. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listened to the first one. It's from my boss. And he's like, call me when you, call me as soon as you get in. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, I'm on vacation till tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. Well, all four of the messages were from my boss. Call me, call me, call me, call me. And I went, oh, okay, maybe I actually better call you. <laughs> so I did. And, and that was the start of it for me because he says, hey, there's this colonel at the Pentagon that wants to talk to you. And I'm like, I don't talk to colonels and I don't ever talk Especially to anybody at the Pentagon. You know what's Pentagon. going on? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm just a captain. Right. <laughs> Flying a Learjet, that's all I do. Where, where are you at time? So, you're, at, you're at Andrews? I'm at Andrews, yeah. Okay, so you're close proximity-wise, so, but still. I mean, that, that yes. might as well be another world away to go to the Pentagon. Oh yeah. Never, never been there. Um, so I call him and he works for general bulls. He was the chief of personnel this time. And, you know, kidding. He's like, you know, we're, nothing's official yet, but would you like to go fly that F, an F 16? And I'm like, are you kidding? Of course I would. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, like I said, nothing's official, nothing's official, but come to general bulls office tomorrow morning at eight. So I went from four in the afternoon, right. Talking to some colonel to yeah. Right off vacation, eight the next morning in the Pentagon. With a fly in a General Bull's office. Yeah. Yeah. With Jeannie Flynn and Martha McSally was the three of us. Wow. And I'm just like going, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm along for the ride. Right. Mm-hmm. And we sit there and General Bull's tells us the combat exclusion is lifted. Jeannie's going to go fly the F-15. Martha's going to go fly the A-10 and I'm going to go fly the F-16. And that was it. I, I couldn't believe it. Right. I mean, I just absolutely couldn't believe what was happening. Um, I was so excited. And then, uh, we had a little bit of media training and then we came back the next day for the press conference with General McPeak and he introduced us as the, the first three. And then we went on this kind of media road show and the Today Show and CNN and we didn't know what we were talking about. We didn't know what it was going to be like to go fly fighters. Right. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, <laughs> but um I was excited about it. Right. But as, as we went through the press conference and as we go through the media, you kind of get the feeling that there's a lot of people that aren't maybe quite as excited as I am. Yeah. Right. There's like General McPeak had, had said a few months before that, that he would rather fly with a less qualified man on his wing than a woman. So that didn't set the tone for us very well, you know, and yeah. the media asked him about that and he said, well, it's possible I may have been wrong. Like, okay. That's, you know, let's go out there and prove you wrong, sir. Yeah, no, so you're really setting us up for success, but hey, dude, I'm, I'm going to take my shot. You're giving me a shot. I'm going to take it. Um, the, the, the challenging part so about just kind of there's a lot of challenges, right, as you're going through this. Uh, one, for the three of you to walk into that office and they say, all right, you, you're the first three. We're putting you in these in these fighters, you know, head off. What you don't necessarily have as you're going through this um, unprecedented time, right, through these waters you've nobody's had to navigate before is just that, right? Like, people that you could look up to and you've got mentors and folks you could talk to, but nobody had gone through the paces of that yet. So to be the first to have to do it, to walk into a squadron, to, to, to come up against comments like that, I I would guess you, you, you caught quite a bit of that. 
Yes. Yes. You could say so. There's some, there's quite a few good stories about uh, comments and things. I mean, I had people flat out tell me I was going to cost people's lives. I was going to ruin fighter squadrons. Um, and they didn't, I mean, they didn't know me. They didn't yeah. know how I flew an airplane. Right. And the same thing. So you have to go through, they made me go through bank recall because I hadn't pulled G's in a while, I guess. I don't know. So I did that. And then I went to fighter lead in and then I went to Luke um, for F-16 training and each place you showed up, you know, there's somebody that's going to come up and tell you how they feel. So you just kind of have to, um, it took me a long time. I put a lot of pressure on myself, right? I really, really felt like if I screwed this up somehow, then everybody's going to go, see, women shouldn't be fighter pilots programs done. That was a nice experiment. Let's, let's go back to the way things were. Right. Um, that's probably unrealistic, but at the time that's very much how I felt. So I think F-16 training is hard enough without putting extra pressure on yourself. <laughs> that was yeah, one of my, one of my very, so. very valuable lessons, but essentially what it came down to, I had talked to, um, my T-38 instructor at, uh, in pilot training, he was an F-16 guy. So I called him up and I'm like, dude, he's like, and I wasn't sure how he was going to feel about it. Right. If he was going to be supportive of me and happy for me, if he's going to go back, ah, you're ruining fighter squadrons. Mm-hmm. Right. And he was super supportive and, and very excited for me. And he, he knew that I could do this. So that helped a lot. And um, my husband was very supportive. My family was supportive. So what I finally, I finally got to the point, I don't know, it's probably halfway through F-16 training where I just went, you know what? I don't care anymore. There's a, there's an old saying that says those who matter don't mind. And those who mind don't matter. Right. And it sounds cheesy, but that's, that's, I internalized that. And I focused on all the people who cared about me and supported me. And I just pushed everybody else away. And you know what? I, your opinion is not going to matter to me anymore. You can put what you want on my grade sheet, you know, and I will take that obviously, because that's important, but your personal opinion of me and whether I should be here or whether I belong, I'm not going to carry that with me anymore. I'm not going to worry about the future of women fighter pilots. I'm not going to worry about if I'm good enough. I'm not going to worry about what anybody says or thinks about me. And once I got to that point, my life became much easier. But that's a tough place to get to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. And it's one thing to have that self-awareness and that confidence. But in the eyes of, you know, adversity, and quite frankly, in the eyes of adversity, amongst your own ranks, right? Like, you know, that's just, it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Um, But so grateful that you uh, and the others were up to the challenge. So that, that three group, tell me the names again. It was you, Jeannie Levitt, is Jeannie that right? Flynn. Okay. Pardon me? Yeah. So tell me those names again. It was me. It was Jeannie Flynn, who's now General Levitt. Yep. And Martha McSally. Who's now Congresswoman, Martha McSally. Yes. Right. Um, how much were you guys, and you probably went off into your own worlds and you got to get to work and put your nose down, but were you leaning on each other throughout that process? No, we did not do a good job of that at all. And it was... It was pre-social media, right? And it was before you even had like the global email where you kept kind of the same email. Your email always changed base to base in the military. So I ran into Jeannie um, um, from my first F-16 assignment. I saw her at training because she was going through training at Luke. I saw her there. And then I saw her when we were at Maple Flag together. And I never ran into Martha, just different worlds. Um, It would have been nice if we did. You know, I think that could have helped. And we've made an effort um, with the current women fighter pilots. There's a pretty good network of support and community. 
and things that address not just um, real important things like life support materials and those kind of things, but also just attitudes and choosing your battles. You know, that's a big thing for people to learn when you're up against um, unwelcoming attitudes is where, pick your battles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so some, some mentoring on that and just some other, some other good things. So, I mean, I know I would look to the wasps when I got really frustrated and I'm like, well, if they could, if they could fly B-17s in the forties, I could probably fly the F-16 in the nineties. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I would look to them for some inspiration, but there was really no person for me to talk to that had done what I'd done. Yeah. 13,000 plus hours in the F-16, including over 50 combat hours in Iraq. What did you love? Oh, it's about 1300, 1300, right? 1300. Plus. Yeah. yeah. 1300 plus. <laughs> what did you like so much about that aircraft? Pardon me. What did you like so much about that aircraft? Oh gosh. Um, so many things on just a, just a fun level. It is like having your own personal roller coaster. I mean, <laughs> you, that airplane could do anything you wanted to do. And I loved roller coasters my whole life growing up. I loved pulling G's before I even knew what pulling G's was. Um, and it took me a long time. It took about three or four years after I retired before I liked roller coasters again, because they just weren't as fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also from an employment standpoint, you're always learning because you can do so many different things with the F-16, right? So I'm now, I've gone through, we had a nuke mission in Spangdalm. I came back to teach it at Luke, which I loved as an assignment. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Shaw and now I'm doing um, C, suppression of any air, enemy air defenses. And I'm an 05 and I'm an instructor and I'm getting checked out as an instructor in a mission that I've never done before. With a new helmet and new, you know, the, the joint helmet mounted queuing system and all these things. So there's no place to get complacent in the F-16. There's just too many things you can do with it. So I love the challenge of learning something new like that without having to new, learn a whole new airplane. That first moment, taking that thing into combat. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was kind of surreal. I mean, you it was we were doing Operation Northern Watch. Mm-hmm. So uh enforcing the no-fly zone over northern Iraq, and we would take off from Turkey and Inserlik and fly basically past Syria and then hang a right into Iraq because Syria wouldn't let us fly over. And they would occasionally um, you know, you'd you'd get a little little radar warning from the Syrian guys. And it was just it was interesting because I mean, as for anybody. You know, you don't want to, we're in a single engine airplane, right? And that's one of the the, the hits on F-16 from people because my motor quits for no reason just than my motor quits. I'm now ejecting in combat territory, in enemy territory, right? Or maybe I get back to Turkey, but now I'm at some out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, base BFE, in, whatever. Yeah, in Turkey. And that's not exactly where oh, I want to yeah. be, you know? Well, it's like when so, Casey, Casey uh, talked about you know, being all shot up and thinking, I just can't put this plane down in Iraq. I got to get out of Iraq. I got to at least get into Kuwait. Like, let me at least get mm-hmm. somewhere where I can take this thing down. Right. And that's, and it's true for, I think, and that's one of the criticisms people would talk about when they talk about putting women in, in fighters and putting us in harm's way. Um, because I'm probably going to have a different experience mm. if I punch out over Iraq than somebody else. But you know, by the same token, what I, what I, the way I explained it to my mom was, mom, we're, we're flying in those places where you can be in danger anyway. It's just now you actually have a chance to shoot back, right? Yeah. I mean, we have women driving trucks in the army and they get, you know, taken prisoner. There's no, there's no safe place. 
So I'd rather be in a place where I can be offensive as well as defensive instead of just defensive. Yeah. You had to eject out of one of those fine F-16s at one point in your career. What was that story? I did. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, so it was a little, uh, just a little uh, training flight back from Beale Air Force Base. And uh, F-16 has got um, a lot of different ways to power its electric systems because it's an electric jet, right? Well, I got a battery low light. Well, I don't go into all those kind of details, but I will tell you that I had a little electrical problem, right? Yeah. And when we have an electrical problem in the F-16, we start our emergency power unit so that if our motor quits, we can restart our motor because that'll provide the power for that. Anyway, I handle my electrical problem like the checklist says, and then other thing is stop working. So now I don't have any radios. Well, this isn't what's supposed to be going on, right? My engine's running, my main generator's online. Why aren't my radios working? Um, so we decide, I decide I'm just gonna come back and land and I've got my wingman and he takes me back and it's standard procedure, right? We're gonna, um, he's gonna lead me to a straight in on final and he's gonna pass me the lead and we're third to land. Are you able to talk to him at this point? No, it's all. Just, this is just this is just hand signals. signals. Yep, all yeah. all our standard um when our radios don't work procedures. So I put my landing gear down and I hear him go clunk 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 because it's nice and quiet in the airplane when your radios don't work. Um, yeah. But I don't get my three green lights that say it's down and locked, right? And I test them. The light bulbs work. So when he goes to give me the lead to land, I shake it off and I tell him no. And he looks at me. You know, can you see him just giving me this puzzled look, right? And I'm like, and I gave him the landing gear down symbol. We don't have a symbol for a radio out symbol for go check my gear, but he kind of figured it out. Yeah. He went and checked my gear yeah. yeah, and came back and gave me a thumbs up. And I'm like, okay, so now we had to go around because we were too close to the field. We come back and we land. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, I hope everything else is working. So land on the runway, arrow brake, lower the nose, put my feet on the brakes and they go straight to the floor without slowing me down an iota. It's just like in the sim, <laughs> but we're not in the sim. So, mm -hmm. I try the other brake channel, nothing. I try the alternate brakes, nothing. I put the hook down and I don't get the, there's a hook on lock light that should come on when you put the hook down and that doesn't come on. And I'm like, well, my gear lights aren't on either. So maybe the hook's actually down. I don't know. So I wait, I hit the first cables about a thousand feet from the end of the runway. So, you're, just you're, so, right past so to tell the story, you've landed. I'm on the ground. You're, you're still cooking on the ground. I'm like 70, 80 miles an hour. Oh, geez. Yeah. And, and not slowing down. You know, my very nice, beautiful aerodynamic airplane is yeah, not slowing a, down on its own at all. Yeah. 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 So it's the first cable. The second cable is right at the end of the runway before the overrun. Right. And I'm so like, that's maybe what that, hook is. that hook essentially is the last minute. That's the last digit. Grab it for right? you. Right. It's yeah. kind of like on an aircraft carrier, yeah. right? When you see them do those kind of landings, but now it's, it's kind of an emergency thing for us. It's not normal. Um, and I get halfway into the overrun. You, there's like the yellow chevrons. You can see the yellow paint and, I'm landing uh, to the north at Luke. So past the runway is a little dirt berm, an inner perimeter fence, a drainage canal, an outer perimeter fence, and a road, and then a farmer's field. So I get halfway into the overrun. I'm like, all right, this is it. They tell you when you first start flying the F-16, because it's got these little tiny tricycle gear, we call them, that if you depart a prepared surface at greater than taxi speed, get out. Yeah. I'm like, all right, well, I'm definitely greater than taxi speed and I'm definitely going to depart the prepared surface. So I pull the handle and, uh, and eject. And, and <laughs> I joke with people that the first thing that happens when you pull the ejection handle is that time just absolutely slows down to a crawl. 
because things that should happen like that seem like they're taking forever. Mm -hmm. Right. So I pulled a handle and I remember thinking to myself, okay, let's go. What's going on? Why is this taking so long? Is this not going to work either? You know, and then you get the little, cause you know, you're basically sitting on a rocket motor. So then you, I start to, I smell the rocket motor fire and then I can see the smoke billowing up around my feet, like the, the gray and black smoke. Mm-hmm. And then the seat starts moving. Like, okay, good. This is good. And then uh, when you, when you eject from an S16, your initial ejection brings on about 13 G's. So 13 times the normal gravitational force mm-hmm. that you have on you. So everything weighs like 13 times more than it should. So your head weighs essentially 130 pounds or so. Wow. And the problem really is that your heart can't pump the blood all the way up to your brain as much as it should. So initially when I first start moving, I can't see anything. Yeah. I'm conscious. I know I'm moving, but I can't see anything. Um, and then I get my vision back as the seat, you know, starts to decelerate a little bit. The drogue shoot goes, I get opening, you know, I get pushed away from my seat, opening shock. I look at the shoot. I'm like, yes, a good shoot. Something's working today. <laughs> Like it's supposed to. So I'm looking at the chute. I look down and I see my airplane is just cruising across the ground, like even faster than when oh, I left. Oh, yeah. So I'm watching that going, wow, I'm really glad I'm not in that. And then I'm like, boom, here's the ground. So yeah. my nice parachute landing fall was basically feet, rear end, head, yeah, smack on the ground. I had some buddies in, in the end of runway getting de-armed and they said that I bounced. <laughs> wow. I didn't. I didn't really bounce. I don't think, I hope not. Um, but you know how the parachute opens and then it breathes and then it opens and then you get your swings. Right. And people ask me, how many swings did you get? I'm like, I didn't get any. Swings. Well, how, I mean, you, you pair, you ejected from the ground. I mean, you can't be how far off the ground. I have so many questions about this one. <laughs> so and the first one is, it reminds me of, you know, we talked to Spanky Peterson about that moment on episode two of pick up the six, where he's getting ready to essentially rescue Marcus Luttrell and he's flying this payfall helicopter and they're in this brownout and he's worried, like it's over. And in his mind, it felt like it was minutes. He said it was like 38 seconds. So you say it felt like it was all taking forever, but in reality from pulling handled up in the air, how long of a time frame was that? Pulling handle to shoot deployed is 2.4 seconds. 2.4 seconds. You said you sat there and felt like, Oh God! For happening, it's yes. that part's amazing. And yes. How far took, does it? How far does it send you? Uh, about a hundred feet. So, yeah. So imagine parachuting from a hundred feet. Yeah. Not much. So you don't get. I mean, it slows you down, but it, it. I hit pretty good. I cracked my tailbone. Yeah. Um, and the airplane did keep going. It actually hit that little uh, dirt berm I told you about, mm-hmm. and it got airborne, and took three hundred feet of perimeter, the inner perimeter fence. Wow. Across Northern Avenue, landed in a farmer's field, and turned it, spun itself back around towards the base. There's probably no video of that. It'd be no, nobody got that on video. Just the memories that you have. How was yeah. the plane afterwards? It was total. It, it was. broke the spine. Yeah, that's incredible. yeah. So ejected and then the, from the ground. How many can say that they've lived one just yeah. to eject, but to do it from in that kind of an instant? And, and you know, you can look back on it now, and we can sort of chuckle and. And, and joke about it a little bit because everything worked out favorably. Yeah. Wow. What an experience. Well, it's funny because I talked to people later and they were like, oh, when you missed the first cable, you should have gone around. What do I'm you like, think? <laughs> I'm like, gone around where? First of all, and, and that's not what we do in the sim. We've done this procedure in the sim, like, I don't know how many times, right? And you get to the end of the runway and nothing works and you eject. So maybe we practice it that way for a reason. I don't know. 
But then what, okay, so let's say I light the burner and I go around and I manage to not tangle myself up in the fence. Now I'm have 1500 pounds of gas and no radios and nothing still works. What am I going to do now? Right. Right. Wow. I don't know. Um, <laughs> did you get to keep anything from the aircraft from that? Yeah, I have, I have the seat actually. I have the seat. I have, um, I have the, uh, stick and the throttle. I have, um, wait, we were coming back from, uh, I had done a static display in Beale. So I had a travel pod on the jet mm-hmm. and it had the, the squadron with the top dogs and had the top dog symbol on there. So I got basically the cutaway of the scratched up from going through the dirt top dog symbol on my travel. <laughs> I will, uh, I'll have him on the show to tell the story. Uh, but my dad in an F one eleven uh, had to punch out and he was with uh, his uh, co-pilot on that day. Who's <laughs> interestingly enough, the, that guy's nickname is born to die. I'm like, oh, that's a great nickname for a guy who had to punch out of an F one eleven. They had to put it down in like a marsh over Scotland because they took a goose strike to the nose of the F-111, basically just blew mm-hmm. up right the front of the yeah. aircraft and they had they had to punch out. And he's got the ejection handle painted like a tiger because they were in the Tigers. Uh, and whatever parts of the story that I mess up, he'll reprimand me later and then we'll fix them at a, at a later date in time. But he also, down the road, it's like years later, somebody at the squadron had the like the inner lining of the parachute they were able to give to him as oh. a gift. So that's hanging in his squadron bar in his house. It's a bar. Oh, house. cool. So that's pretty neat, but the ejection handle's in there too, as a, yeah. as a key Actually, from that experience. I got to keep my helmet as well. I remember my life support guys being a little upset because I'd just gotten a new helmet. And once you eject in a helmet, you can't wear it anymore, so it was totaled as well. Yeah, I'll take it with you. Yeah, it's kind of like car seats, I guess. You know, once you get in a crash, they're no good Man. anymore. <laughs> we, um, I'm trying to get myself emotional. I mean, we grew up as kids wearing those, putting them on, uh, sometimes at the squadron, but he's got a couple of them at the house as well. It's a neat keepsake to be able to do that in a yeah. rather harrowing experience. I mean, to be able to walk away from is uh, pretty. Yes. Cool. Yes, it was. And it was, um, you know, it's one of those things where all the things that I'd kind of overcome to be, become an F-16 and instructor pilot and pretty well respected in the community. And, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I'm sitting on my butt in the dirt going, what the heck just happened? Right. And it really kind of um, messed with my confidence for a little bit because it was, it was 11 days later when I was cleared to fly again. And I'm like, Hmm. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) You know, and logically, you know, that's never going to happen again. Right. Not the same way anyway. And the chance of it happening at all, are really slim, but it just took me a little while. I had to sit back and really think about what was important to me and what I wanted to do, Mm. you know, to get back in the jet. And I went flying and I'm glad I did, but it was one of those, it was one of those things you had to think about for a little bit. Yeah. Or I never yeah. had before. Yeah. It was, it's a sort of take stock of things. Yeah. Kind of moment. Yeah. But it just kind of came down to the fact my, you know, my husband supported me. My family still supported me. The seat worked when nothing else did. So, you know, I'm just going to take that as my, that's what's going to work if I need it again. And, and let's go fly. Yeah. Uh, it ends up being an incredible career from there. Time and aircraft isn't just the F-16. After you uh, retired from the Air Force, you head to Southwest. Uh, you yeah. had over 8,000 hours in the Boeing. So you go from this sports car, essentially, right, to a school yep. bus that you yes. get to fly. What was that transition like? It was um, it was interesting. I mean, I had a little bit of time in the Learjet, so that helped a little bit with kind of just the flight management system and stuff. But yeah, when I wasn't on the autopilot, I had to be very careful to limit myself to 30 degrees of bank and there's this voice in the airplane that will yell at you, bank angle, bank angle. 
I heard that a few times that mm-hmm. my first six months or so. And then the whole, um, you know, the fighters, you don't have to fly 250 below 10. It's not a thing. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a thing with airliners. So sure. that was the other thing that was a little different, but I mean, I enjoyed it. It was just a new challenge, you know, and it was, you saw, I mean, the flying wasn't as exciting by any way, shape or form. As a matter of fact, you didn't want it to be exciting, right? A boring day is a good day in the airline yeah. industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but beautiful sunrises and sunsets. And then, you know, night flying at 35,000 feet, and you can see the Milky Way. You know, it's, it's, there's some advantages to it as well. I really enjoyed it, the time there. There's, there's such incredible responsibility. I mean, you're taking hundreds of people uh, on a flight. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And uh, sometimes when I'm flying, I think about like, man, I wonder what the pilot, I mean, it's pilots, they got all these people on this airplane (laughs) and there's, and there's hundreds of these happening right now. Right. Thousands across the globe. Um, It's pretty amazing. You know, what I like about Southwest is love the company. I think they, I think they have fun. I, I wonder if you ever were like, you know, this is your captain speaking, a uh, former F-16 pilot here. So strap in folks. We're going to have a great <laughs> Yeah, no, I am. Um, I would, uh, I would joke with the passengers like in person when they're boarding the plane and they can see me. Yeah. But I wouldn't joke with them over the PA. Oh, yeah, I learned probably. that passengers prefer their pilots to be serious and, you know, responsible and not funny. So I, get that. I would joke about the weather occasionally, but um, that was about it. Yeah. I would try to try to just be more serious for them. And, and it was, it was interesting to me how many times we would get people who board the airplane who were quite concerned, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are concerned when they, when they travel commercially and, and they would want to talk to me and I would, you know, I would always kind of tell them the same thing. And this is how I approached travel, carrying all those people with me. Right. And that responsibility was, you know, if I just make sure that I get to where I'm supposed to go safely, then all those other people are going to get there as well. Right. So when I would talk to people, I always had a, I always had a picture of my son in my lanyard behind my uh, crew ID. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would say, you know, ma'am, your safety is very, very important to me, but I just want to explain to you that you see this little guy, he's 12. Right. And it's, it's very, very important to me that I get home to him safely. And if I do that, then you're going to get to where you want to go safely as well. And they seem to appreciate that. Right. Cause they, Oh yeah, you do have a vested interest in this. You know, I'm not just goofing around. I'm, I'm yeah. serious about, you know, managing the fuel and watching the weather and doing all those things that you do as an airline pilot, because I want to get home safely too. Yeah. Powerful. I want to talk about coaching before we wrap up, but, but before that, that four-year-old little girl walks up to the cockpit and says, I want to be a stewardess. And her mom says, you should be a pilot. And then that four-year-old little girl becomes a pilot on an aircraft like that. Yes. It's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. And especially when you look at the time frame, right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't very common then. And I'm thankful my mom was always encouraging us to, to be the people we wanted to be right. And do the things we wanted to do and not, and not let others necessarily dictate to you. You know, throughout a, a journey like yours and a career like yours, you come across great leaders. You talked about it. It was that coach in high school that helped you kind of, you know, get on the right track. And I know for you throughout your career and, and even in the stages where you're at now, you lean so much into that role and, and imparting some wisdom, providing leadership and coaching. So just tell me a little bit about how that's sort of lighting the fire for you right now. Yeah. So I, uh, I am really, really enjoying that. It's I, like, I, I, one of the favorite things about my military career was mentoring and helping people develop themselves professionally and personally. Right. And so that's the part that I'm trying to still do that. I am still doing with my coaching. 
And I focus primarily on um, being a transition coach and helping young adults either transition high school to college, high school to career, college to career, helping them figure out where their strengths are and what it is they want to do. And then, you know, most spotter pilots are pretty good planners. You know, we've done a lot of mission planning in our lives and, and knowing what you want to do is only as good as the plan you make to get to where you want to be. Right. So it's not just helping people figure out what they want to do, but then helping them make a plan so you can have those those little steps along the way, right? The checkpoints, the waypoints on your route to show that you're making progress. So you don't get discouraged, right? And you can see that you're moving towards your goal. And then the the other thing to always remember is it's okay to change your goal, right? Sometimes people get so set on um, what they want to do with their life that, that, you know, I've watched that I want to be a pilot since I was four. So I have to be a pilot. No, you don't have to be, you can change your mind, Mm -hmm. right? That's that's a valuable bit of freedom that we lose track of sometimes. I mean, and I'll if I have time, I'll tell you one quick other military story. Please. Um, I always once I got to be a fighter a fighter pilot, I wanted to be a fighter squadron commander. Right. That's what I wanted to do. It's what a lot of fighter pilots want mm-hmm. to do, and that was my ultimate goal. And then we had our son Colin, and he was just under three years old when we went to my assignment at Shaw, where I was hoping to get a chance to be a fighter squadron commander. And shortly after we got there, he got sick. He had leukemia when he was little. He's, he's fully healthy now, but I mean that him going through chemotherapy and all the things that went with it and the things that it did to our life, that made me refocus and change my goal. My goal wasn't to be a fighter squadron commander anymore. My goal was to spend as much time at home as I could and still do my job. Right. So that's what it's okay for people to reevaluate their goals as they go through life and change them. And the same thing happened with Southwest. I retired early from Southwest Airlines because I was given an opportunity to. I hadn't planned to. But then my goal didn't become to be, you know, a captain with 20,000 hours. I was already a captain. Now my goal came, what can I do with my time that I want to do when I have the freedom to do it because I don't have to earn money at it? Mm. And that's the beauty of coaching for me is it's truly what I want to do. I thoroughly enjoy it. I make a little bit of money, but and I make and my speaking as well is just as important to me, but I'm free in that I'm still getting paid by Southwest for another four years. I'm still getting my military retirement. I can do no kidding what I want to do. And that is just an amazing feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. And you're able to, to take all those pieces that have been poured in and, and pour them out into other people. That's, that's legacy leaving kind of stuff. You know, I once heard uh, this example where you talk about having plans and having goals, but having to course correct and having to adjust those plans. So if you take off from LA and you're a pilot, so you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong. But if you take off for LA and you're headed to Hawaii, and if you get pushed off course by just one degree, just one degree, which doesn't sound like a lot, and you don't adjust that plan, you'll miss the island by a thousand miles. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's a thousand miles, but you'll definitely miss it. Right, yeah, you'll you definitely miss it. So yeah. you've got to be prepared to have plans, but, but to be doing evaluation and look at it. And I right. think that's where coaches really are helpful because they're able to come up here, right? And I'm pulling mm-hmm. myself up out of it while you're so, right? You probably have clients or folks that you teach or coach that are, boy, they're in the, they're in the go of the daily grind. You need somebody at times, a mentor, a coach, right? Yeah. Someone who can, who can help guide you along that and, and, and remove out to be able to look at it from that standpoint. It's, it's easy, especially in a, for executive coaching, it's easy for people to get so involved in the firefighting, right. Mm -hmm. Of the day-to-day firefighting that they forget anything about fire prevention, right. How do we get to the point where we don't have all these fires to fight anymore? Right. That's where you have to get to. And you have to take yourself out of the day-to-day sometimes to be able to see that 
and build the vision that'll help your company or your you accomplish your goals quicker and easier. Really incredible. I have loved our conversation. Uh, you guys, as knowing from listening to talking to Tammy, uh, to, uh, to Combo, Athena's Voice is a great place where you can find awesome people like Sharon Presler, right? They do speaking engagements out of there as well. I'm just, I'm so grateful. What an incredible conversation. So thankful for all that you've done on behalf of our nation for what you continue to do. And just grateful that, uh, that you're in that initial cadre and, and that you took the chance when called upon to, uh, to make some history. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed talking to you and I definitely uh, appreciate the opportunity that I was given and I'm enjoying giving back. Love it. She is Colonel Sharon Presler made history part of the initial cadre of women fighter pilots flew the F-16. It's been an incredible conversation. Thanks again. She's Colonel Presler. I am Brian Jodis, and this has been pick up the six podcast. 